Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Most people believe that when they're with the right person, it's going to be problem-free, and that's not the reality. I think it's very healthy to actually fight in a relationship. It means that you're passionate, that you care enough to have arguments and discuss them. And you also shouldn't, you know, I hear this a lot. People are like, oh, you know, it's not who I married or when did he change or when did she become like that? I'm like, you just weren't paying attention because we will be forever evolving. We are meant to. The key here in a relationship is that you communicate with one another, that you share those aspects of yourself, that you can talk about who you want to become or who you don't want to become. And so that you grow at least side by side. It doesn't have to be the same, but there's that momentum where you're growing in the same direction and moving forward. Welcome to the new season of the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the author and founder of the award-winning app and best-selling book, Happy Not Perfect. This is our time to take a break and go within to unlock ourselves in a new way and stretch our thinking. Whatever you are going through right now, I welcome you into this conversation with a new inspiring thought leader each week to help us thrive, rise, and realize our full truth and unlimited potential. As you might know if you read my book, I'm passionate about us becoming flexible in our thinking, and that starts with some mind, body, and soul healing. So let's dive in. On today's podcast, I have someone I am so excited to speak with, the global spiritual leader, Monica Berg, who is the author of some of my most favorite books, including Fear is Not an Option, Attracting the One, Becoming One, and the book we are going to be speaking about today, Rethink Love. Throughout Monica's work, she shows individuals how to create a life in which they are living and loving as the most powerful and fulfilled person they've always wanted to be. Her books combine her many years of Kabbalistic study with her own personal life experiences. She battled and overcame a debilitating eating disorder at a young age, and as a mother of four children, one of whom has special needs, she has become an outspoken advocate for him and others struggling to find their voice. Monica is also the co-host of the Spiritually Hungry podcast, which is truly brilliant, and she does that with her husband, and serves as Chief Communications Officer for the Kabbalistic Centre International. Monica's book on love is truly a highlighter at the ready book. I underlined so many quotes and questions and points, and it truly did make me rethink love. I can't wait to dive in to discuss this further. Love is something that is somewhat confusing me lately because I'm only beginning to really understand the full extent of what that word really means. And it's far from what Disney told me many years ago. It's a true honor to have such a profound spiritual thought leader on the show today. What is your favorite quote and a one you return to often and why? I love this one by Maya Angelou. Um, she said that 
people will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I think that's true. I think far too often we're worried about how we're perceived and what we said and did we inspire, but really it comes down to that true care that we have for one another. You know, I mean, often the question is, is it more important to have a teacher or a friend? Is it more important to which one um, takes precedence? And I think really, you know, it goes to the testament of friendship and connection and really being there for someone in the truest of ways. So that's such a beautiful way to start. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Yeah, it's been a challenging month for me. Um, I had uh, a surgery on my, my ankle. Uh, it's a quote by uh, Frederick Nietzsche. And he said, when we are tired, we're attacked by ideas we conquered long ago. I just love that because, you know, when you feel like you've overcome something, you've worked really hard to get to the other side of it. But then when you're like tired or you're broken down from exhaustion or pain, it's like you think those things are still true and they still have a hold over you and they don't really. But uh, exhaustion can make us see things differently. What does soul mean to you? Well, it's the truest part of yourself. It's the spark of, I call it the creator. You can call it anything you want, but really something higher than yourself. Uh, As we go through life and you know, sometimes we act in accordance to our highest self, our soul. Other times we don't, and we cover it up through actions of desire to receiving for the self alone, not caring about others' well-being and the process, perhaps. And we cover soul up. Really, our purpose in this life is to peel back those layers, like an onion peel, right? And, and your soul is always strong, always true, always pure. So it's the best, most true part of yourself. It's what kindness looks like, empathy, compassion, vulnerability. It's all of those things that are hard to maintain or to be in that state, but that really is your truest essence. And when you live according to that, right, you are happier and fulfilled and and truly experience freedom. Unfortunately, people are given the feedback that you should focus on the other aspects of you, right? Which is usually your desire, uh, your physicality, things that we think will make us happy. But soul is really... um, our highest self and our purpose is finding ways to connect and reveal that each day. That is such a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Rethink Love, it is honestly the best relationship book that I have read and I have read a lot. (laughs) Why did you want to write this book? Well, I met with many people. I, I counsel people and there were two themes actually that came up a lot. And so I wrote actually books on both. And one was fear, right? Because that can paralyze us from living our lives. And the other was relationships, whether they were looking for love or wanted to leave a relationship or that they were single and, you know, wanted to find their soulmate, whatever that means. And so I realized that relationships either make our lives better or worse. And sometimes they do both. And I just felt like if I can put all of this in a book, everything that I've learned, Because the truth of the matter is the themes were all the same. The kinds Mm. of questions that came up for people, the kinds of issues, they were the same across the board. They might be with a different theme, right? They thought that the issue was the mother-in-law or their childhood or whatever it was, but there was this commonality. So I wanted to address each thing because in truth, it's not that difficult as it seems to create the kind of love that you want. I think that people often start in the wrong place. And they also think that the destination is wrong. I just think the the markers are off. And once that you identify that and you're really clear about that, which is rethinking everything you think you know about love, then you can really attract the mate that you want. 
And to your point, your book breaks it down in such simple ways. And you also have these like mini exercises, like rethink moments, which are really helpful. But you begin the book saying, there's only one way to receive love, and that's to give it away. This sentence just really stood out for me. And I thought, huh, that feels like an oxymoron, but obviously it's not. Why did you begin the book this way? Because I love that. I mean, again, when people are looking for love, they think it's something that's external and it's not. It really much is a very internal exercise. It has to start there. It's where it ends. I think people far too often skip the part where they cultivate a relationship with themselves, one that's healthy, one that's kind, compassionate, and loving. And then they go and they seek externally for that person that's going to check off all the boxes that will fulfill them, that will make them happy, which is an impossibility because nobody can do that for you. So once you stop and say, okay, I realize whatever it is I'm looking outside for, I need to become that first, not only for myself, right? Offering it to myself, but then offer it to others. And in doing that, you're able to attract that level of soul. Far too often, again, it's something that we assign for somebody else to do for us or to give for us. And if you start a relationship like that, think about it. It's going to be always like, oh, you used to make me feel good and now you don't. You used to give me things and now you don't. You used to make me feel pretty and now you don't. And so what actually transpired here? And that's why relationships are really great and hot and heavy at the beginning. And then it starts to fade. And then you wonder why, what happened to all of those things? But if you go into relationship first with saying, okay, I don't need external validation. I don't need that approval, but I'm going in and I'm really... I am offering what it is I want to receive in return. You're starting the relationship at a completely different frequency and one that has longevity, right? Because the starting point is like at this place where I'm here, I'm offering all these things to myself and I want to offer them to you. And imagine if a person then came with that same space, well, then it's just a unit that's sharing. And, and of course, most, and that's also why I wrote the book. Most don't have that awareness. And certainly um, it's hard to find two people to come with that kind of consciousness. But when you, when, again, you rethink what love is supposed to offer and you challenge the beliefs that you have that started from your childhood that were impressed by us from, you know, TV, poetry, books, um, then we can really say, okay, what is it? What do I really want this to look like? How should it look? We're told to almost have a shopping list. Other teachers I've heard that have said, you know, write down all the things that you're looking for in someone. And one of the reasons I really enjoyed your book is because it kind of rips that shopping list up a little bit. What is dangerous about having a very specific shopping list? Because some people would say, oh, well, that helps you manifest. That helps you to bring in what you want. But also I found it to be actually really detrimental. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is exactly how you get into the issue of what we just discussed, where the relationship is supposed to provide something for you. It's this consumer mentality, Mm -hmm. give me, feed me, help make me better. And none of that is going to work long-term. I think that also the problem with those lists is that they're usually rooted in, again, that desire to receive for the self alone. So something that I study is Kabbalah and it's, and I, and I really do believe that there needs to be a spirituality in a relationship. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be Kabbalah, but I think that you have to come with that because if not, the ego really gets the the better of both people, right? Like I want to be right. You're wrong. I said it, you didn't, you don't agree. You don't see me, whatever it is. And it pits people against each other. But if you're able to make your list without those glasses on. So Kabbalistically, there's the 1% reality and there's the 99%. So 1% is everything we basically see, right? Taste, smell, touch. And if you're looking for a mate, right? With just that lens, so money gets spent, looks fade, you know, all the things that 
By the way, I, I think that that's important perhaps, but it can't be everything because if it's only reliant on that, then when those things that are very limited don't last forever, then what are you left with actually? And there's a chapter in my book and it's about cherished illusions. And many people enter relationships with illusions of grandeur, of you know whatever your list is. And then the illusion is eventually shattered and what are you left with? So everybody has them. I had it also when I got married. The difference with my illusion is that it wasn't about who I married. It was who I would be in the marriage. So mine wasn't that dangerous because I just thought, you know, I married a really spiritual person. And once we got married, I'd be elevated to a higher state of spirituality and I wouldn't have to do as much hard work in that area. And of course, that was false. And I realized it. And then when the, the, the pieces shattered, I picked them up. But I was like, okay, I understand what I need to do here. But if you have an illusion about who you thought you were going to marry and why, and then that's no longer important to you and was never real, that could be a real problem. If you choose a mate in the 99% realm, so your, your list would look very different. It would be, again, I want somebody who is kind, compassionate, vulnerable, wants to do good perhaps in the world, right? It's tapped into a higher frequency. Two things happen. First of all, that has longevity, that list, but also chances are, and this needs to happen, you're actually living in that way because Mm -hmm. those things are important to you. So you're able to actually find a mate that can meet you where you're at. So powerful. I love how you wrote this bit. There is no such thing as a stable marriage. There are happy marriages and unhappy marriages, but not stable ones. And you write further saying, the truth is that every relationship has problems and the relationships that work are the relationships we work on. And this was such an aha moment and made me giggle because I kind of had this delusion that love, if it was real love, would be effortless and, you know, wonderful. And, you know, someone's like, well, when you're in love, just, you know, the sky lights up and you've got hearts in your eyes. And I just felt that this was like the most realistic account and perspective grounding. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Most people believe that when they're with the right person, it's going to be problem free. And that's not the reality. I think it's very healthy to actually fight in a relationship. It means that you're passionate, that you care enough to have arguments and discuss them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember years ago, my kids, they came home, they had a mutual, mutual friends, like brothers and sisters. And they said, you know, their parents are getting divorced. We don't understand. We never saw them fighting. The kids are also shocked. They never saw their parents fight. And I said, well, that should have been your first indication means they just didn't care anymore. So Mm. if you understand that change is the law of life, right? Things are either going forward or backwards. That is a fact in life. But if you apply that to relationships also, then you understand that that stability, there's no such thing. And when you see things going forward, you see things changing in any direction, it's something you want to discuss that you want to share with one another. You also shouldn't, you know, I hear this a lot. People like, oh, you know, it's not who I married or when did he change or when did she become like that? I'm like, you just weren't paying attention because we will be forever evolving. We are meant to. The key here in a relationship is that you communicate with one another, that you share those aspects of yourself, that you can talk about who you want to become or who you don't want to become. And so that you grow at least side by side. It doesn't have to be the same, but there's that momentum where you're growing in the same direction and moving forward. And part of that, of course, you're going to have uh, challenges. You're going to have obstacles because that is part of life. And, and, and relationships are really mirrors. So imagine there's pressure, you know, we talked about the pandemic, things come up, 
there's external pressures. And then if you're not having those kinds of conversations, then that can be a pressure cooker for the relationship, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think the first thing is that we have to manage our expectations and understand them and see if they're realistic. Let's just start there. Yeah. And something else that, again, was quite a kind of another aha moment was when you describe a relationship as an experience to souls need. And this, I thought, made so much sense when we have a habit, I think, and culture to assume an unsuccessful relationship is every single one that breaks up, when actually a breakup can also be a divine event that's good for both people. It's not a disaster. Why do you describe it as a relationship as an experience two souls need? Well, this is the thing also. I think that so often, again, if you really believe that a relationship is supposed to be problem-free. So then you fast forward and now there's issues in the relationship. And so now you're really quick to exit and you're already imagining, you know, on that flight you're taking in a month from now, you're going to sit next to your soulmate and you're going to fall in love. And there's somebody else better out there for you. And there might be somebody else that you are suited for that is maybe the one to spend the rest of your life with, but it doesn't mean that the relationship you're in right now or the relationship you were in didn't have a very specific purpose and meaning. I even say to couples who are thinking about divorce or breaking up, I give them exercises to do for a month or three months because there's something called tikkun, which is correction. And so each person comes into this world with something very specific to correct about themselves, right? So it could be a theme for some, it's it's money issues for others. It could be um, self-care and you'll be given opportunities in your life that's targeted on that theme so that you can overcome them and transform to something higher and elevated. Relationships are really remarkable and able in being able to do that for people. So I say, see it out. If, like, for instance, if you're in a relationship and you can't communicate because they're screamers and you shut down, really practice that. Start to advocate for yourself. Even if you decide to leave, finish the process. See it through mm-hmm. to the end. So you've, you're, you can now create a new relationship. And that's a stepping stone, right? Because you don't need to go and correct that part again. You've already done that. And you've learned something really valuable about yourself. I think that as culture, whenever we're uncomfortable, uh, we'll do anything to stop the discomfort. Often people medicate or they run away or they get distracted. And I think that's also why the pandemic was so hard for so many people, because we really couldn't do that. And that's why in my life, you know, even with this challenge with my ankle right now or anything that comes up, you could look at it like, oh, why did this happen? What's the lesson? I want this to end as soon as Mm. possible. I'm suffering through it. That's one way. Or you can say, okay, I believe that I need to reset. And this is a great opportunity for me to do that. And I really want to be open to see the messages of what this is presenting for me. What is the opportunity here? And that's what we want to do with relationships also. I really love that. What is the opportunity rather than like, what's the lesson? Because sometimes I think we can kind of almost be spiritually hard on ourselves the whole time. So punishing, so punishing. Yeah. I would love to kind of dive into the Kabbalistic principles within your book, because obviously all of your work is underpinned by your studying, but actually I think Kabbalah, a lot of people won't be familiar with. So what even is it and what are the main uh, philosophies behind it? So Kabbalah is an ancient wisdom that is a remarkable way of helping people reveal their potential. Kabbalists believe that each soul is destined for greatness, and we are here to come into this world, as I said, to transform and grow into the highest version of ourselves. And uh, Kabbalah, through all of its teaching and tools, is remarkably effective in helping people realize what those things are for themselves. And I've 
you know, you can apply it to anything that comes up in your life with this lens on. It's really basically an expansion of consciousness mm. to see that each thing that happens to you should happen through you. And by doing that, your consciousness grows and grows and then your perspective shifts and that you actually become like a co-creator instead of things happening to you and becoming a victim, you actually are able to create the life that you want for yourself in ways that you never even imagined. And how did you find Kabbalah? What was it that inspired you to start studying it? I started studying when I was 17, funnily enough. And everybody really is hardwired for seeking. We all have seven different characteristics of things that we, that are important to us as a human species, like desire, uh, need for shelter, need for certainty, and seeking is one of them. And seeking actually is the one that drives us the most. So I guess with that knowledge, even, you know, I know I came into this world, even at a young age at three, four or five, and I started remember, remembering these things at age five, I'd have tea parties with God. You know, I never felt like alone. And I always felt that I was with a higher presence. I also remember feeling like a bit of an alien in my home, you know, like, mm. how did I get here? I mean, I come from a very loving family, and but I just felt different. And I also saw people struggling and um, suffering and searching still and not having answers. And I kept thinking, as I was growing up, like this cannot be why we are here. This cannot be it. This th- There has to be more. And then when I was a teenager, I went to Beverly Hills High School and I really moved away from my spirit and my connection to my soul. And I went through a darker period. And from that, anorexia then developed. But then I was just, I discovered Kabbalah and it was the first time I got answers to those questions that I had always had. And not just that, things were very familiar things that I learned, I was like, oh, I've known this, or that's familiar, or I've experienced this before. It just felt like it wasn't new. And then from that place, you know, still there are challenges that happen, of course. And I think that the most challenging things happened to me actually after I started studying Kabbalah, and not because of it. I think that I was being able to give in, I was given the tools and the answers so that when the challenges did come about in my life, I actually had the solution already or the potential to find it. So um, for me, it's been everything. And I, I certainly would not be living the life I'm living had I not discovered that wisdom. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the most ancient wisdom, I guess, that can be recorded of human history. Of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so there's many other things that, you know, truth is truth, but this is the source, really. I mean, you, you know, you could study Kabbalah your entire life and still not, <laughs> and not have studied all of it. I mean, it's very dense, it's very deep, and it's very uh, difficult to understand the deepest, deepest parts of it. But for all of us, you know, it is the most practical way, and I think to affect immediate, long-lasting change. I've got some really exciting news. My podcast partners. Platinum CBD have decided to offer the chance for not perfect listeners to try their CBD for free. So all you need to do is pay for shipping. Super easy. So if you want to try Platinum CBD for free to help you sleep, manage stress or sore muscles, then all you have to do is visit coal-care.uk and the link will be in the show notes too. And choose between a 10 milliliter CBD oil in peppermint or unflavored or the CBD soft gel capsules. Add it to your basket and at checkout, add the code NOTPERFECTFREE. Get your free CBD while stocks last. So 
actually you touched upon your childhood and this is also something that you dive into in the book when you invite us as readers to look into our childhood beliefs about love to understand perhaps our relationship now with love why is that important I think that often, especially when we become adults, we have belief systems. A lot of them are not supportive. And I think that because they're our beliefs or they're in our minds or they're our voice that we hear, we think that they're truth. And I have found very often that they are not, especially the negative ones. So I encourage people to go back and really challenge that. Is this your belief? Or was this a belief of your mother or your father or something you saw in the relationship or what your third grade teacher told you about yourself? Where did this develop? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we also create belief systems to survive a certain experience, right? If there was trauma growing up or yelling or screaming, and we create these belief systems as a means to survive. And perhaps we needed at that time. But I have come to know that as an adult, right, you really should go back and challenge and say, okay, A, is this my thought? And B, does it still support me or work for me? Do I still need this to survive? Am I in survival mode? Usually the, que- the answers to those questions are all no. So then you're able to say, okay, if I don't believe that, or I know that this belief is not supporting me or what I really want in life, what is it that I truly do want to believe? Because to create a belief system, first, you have to have a choice, right? And decide what that is. And then from there, you can really empower yourself to live that. I just think far too often, and not just with belief systems, but we just go around assuming that this is as good as it gets, or Mm -hmm. that we're not deserving of great things, or other people deserve better than we do. And based on what? Challenge it. If it doesn't support you, drop it. You don't need to carry this along for the ride for the rest of your life. It's amazing how many patterns we repeat if we don't take that step. And uh, Monica shares questions that you can ask yourself to kind of find some of these limiting thoughts. I love the quote you write, problems arise not because we are unaware of our partner's story of past, but because we are not aware of the stories in our minds. I'd love to, if you could expand on that, it would be great. Yeah. And it's, it's so often that we have these stories of victimization, you know, that person hurt me or that's what they meant. And we make so many assumptions about so many things. And so we're just not even aware of that, right? If you, if you didn't do what we just talked about, about catching those belief systems you might have for yourself, then you go and you enter a relationship. And when you start to feel insecure in the relationship or uncomfortable, it's going to be your partner's fault. It's going to be their issue because you don't even have that self-awareness of what you are really, really feeling. Like what's the truth, right? And I also think that it's an unfair thing to do when we expect our partners to read our minds or to know what we're thinking, when in fact, we don't even do that for ourselves for the most part, which is why the first part of my book, it's in three parts. The first part is called me. It's eight chapters devoted to really becoming your own best friend, to really cultivating the most important, longest relationship you'll ever have, which is the one you have with yourself. And I feel fortunate enough to have done this at age 17 because I was forced to because of the eating disorder. It was either that or die, quite honestly, at that point in my life. But even if you're 70 and and maybe you're finding yourself single again for whatever reason, it's never too late to do this because this feeling of not belonging or feeling comfortable in your skin, it's never going to go away unless you do the work to really change that. So it starts with you, it ends with you. And, um, and I really encourage readers and your listeners to do that. The book encourages you to appreciate the essence of the soul. And I guess like this could seem like ugh, that just seems so unpractical. Like how on earth do I appreciate the essence of my soul? How do you advise someone to even begin to know what their soul wants? Well, here's the thing. 
if you go through life and again, you've shut down your internal voice, you've shut down. And by the way, I think we, we do this a lot when we're younger and in high school, we really care what our friends think. We really care what our role models think. So we, their voices become the loudest ones in our head, right? And so what happens to our own, it becomes quieter and quieter till it becomes inaudible, especially if you never listen to it, right? If you say, oh, that person is smarter than I am, or they know what's better for us to do or for me to do, eventually you don't even know which way to go because you've not invested in that part of you. In fact, you've ignored it. So over time, you don't even have access to it. And then you get older and you're like, oh my God, I don't know. I need to ask a therapist or I need to ask the doctor. I need to ask my mother. I need to ask... And it's like, you're kind of like going through life flailing around because you haven't, you've quieted that part. So I say, you know what, just raise the volume a little bit. And I think first people have to give themselves permission to want. I write about this in my book too. So often we have the shame of wanting. We're full of shame and guilt and blame. And we tend to focus all of that negative energy on ourselves. And what happens is we don't think we have the right to desire. We don't have the right to want more or want something better. And if that's really what you believe, and again, not a true belief, but if that's what you believe and that's what you're giving energy and power to, then how would you even be able to hear the voice either? You're not going to connect to your soul because you're too busy telling yourself that you aren't deserving of more or goodness or what you really want. That's actually one of the main reasons I started becoming fascinated by Kabbalah because it was like honestly the first time where it was this spiritual wisdom that celebrated desire, obviously not for self alone, but you know, wanting for for many people to benefit. Uh, why do you think we have been so conditioned to almost find desire an ugly word to put ourselves down, to act small, to yeah, be embarrassed about kind of saying what we want? I think at a very young age, especially girls, but I think it happens to both sexes, get feedback from society, culture, their parents, their teachers, that what they want or what they're expressing that they want is wrong. Mm. And so, of course, when you're little, and again, it depends what kind of home you grew up in, because maybe your parents are also full of shame, right? It's the cycle that continues. Then you start to think, oh my God, I need to hide the truest parts of myself. I can't really be vulnerable because people know who I am. They're not going to like me. Mm-hmm. Again, if it goes back to ancestral times where we have a real desire to fit in and to belong, because mm-hmm. at that time, if we didn't, it would it was for sure death, right? We couldn't mm-hmm. survive without a pact or a group. We needed to be hunters and gatherers together. One person alone would not survive. So we have really old software running still again, and it's not truth, but it feels like truth. So I think it's just, again, not be hard on yourself today, right? Try to go back. And this is another exercise I do in my book to the first time you experience shame. I remember mine. I don't know if you remember yours. Maybe you want to share it with us today. I'm happy to share mine. Um, and I did this exercise in a workshop too, and it was so powerful. Her story was amazing. I'm happy to share all of it because I think yeah, yeah, I'd love to you hear examples. I think you're more inspired to say, yeah. okay, wait, let me figure mine out. Um, for me, it was when, uh, well, there were two. And I think they were around the same time, but the more notable one, because the feedback was from my mom, we were staying with her best friend in New York City. And um, we were staying with them for a few nights. And one night we were watching TV together. I was probably seven. And that's usually when the shame of wanting sets in. It's around six, seven. The, the woman we were staying with, she was like an aunt, but not a blood relative. We called her Tanti, but she was really just my mom's best friend. And her husband walked in as we're watching a film, all of us, and he brought a, a plate of fruit over. And he asked everybody in the room, you know, would you like some fruit he had cut? Right. And I said, Oh, I would love a piece of apple. And everybody like gasped how rude it was of me to say I wanted it. 
And I remember as a child, I thought, oh my God, I should never ask for what I want. But I also remember thinking, because I did have a sense, right? Of wait, I'm not the one who's wrong here. Why didn't he cut fruit for everybody? That was selfish, right? I remember thinking that, but I didn't have the courage and I didn't have the support at that age to be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> this is not, this is not on me. Um, but I did walk away thinking, well, I don't ever want to feel like that again. So I'm just not going to ask for what I want. Another, so the girl in my workshop, she had shared, and it was really quite sad that uh when she was around seven or eight, she was in a dance class, a ballet class. And on that day, they were encouraged to bring something that inspired them and wear it as part of like dress up day. And she, Michael Jackson was very popular at the time. And she brought in the, the, you know, the glitter silver glove and the teacher, for whatever reason, was really offended. And she berated her in front of the whole class and shamed her. Like, why would you pick that? That's disgusting. And she felt so humiliated that she decided right then and there that she wasn't going to pursue her career in creativity. Like she wanted to be a writer and a dancer. She chose a job in banking that she's very good at, but she hates it to this day. She stood up there as a 35 year old woman saying she hates what she does, but now it it supports her family. And she doesn't have the courage to really, but to go do what she wants, but still every day she pines to go and have this Mm -hmm. other life that she always wanted. So that's how shame really blocks us. And it could be something so subtle and so insignificant at the end of the day. For me, it was a slice of fruit, you know? And by the way, the correlation of having eating disorder and the first time I felt shame was Mm -hmm. around food, there's a connection. And for her to really decide to spend her whole life doing something she hates because she got feedback from a ballet teacher who she doesn't even know at that specific stage. And, you know, I have two girls and two boys and I purposely raise them very differently to always ask for what they want, that there's no shame in asking for what you want. And really it's the more different you are and the more unique you are, the better, because that's, that's real and that's fun. And that's you, you know, my, my youngest and I've just written five children's books during COVID and, uh, and they're, they're all about finding what makes you different and that being your superpower. Love that. Yeah. I'm really excited about that because I I just don't, I mean, it took me a really long time to get to where I'm at. And so with my girls and with all my kids, but my girls, especially because I think that we are, we are more keen on watching out for what people are saying or thinking or feeling that we take in a lot more than men do. Because I do think men are more emotional, actually. So it's not about being emotional. It's just about being more aware and feeling like we need to take care of everybody, including people's feelings and making them comfortable, which usually means that we hide parts of ourselves to make others shine. And it's so true. I was trying to think of my, uh, my, I would say like earliest memory. And I think it was probably around actually asking for something and then being told that we couldn't afford it. And that that's kind of interesting because I think this idea of like money and safety was conditioned at such a young age. And, you know, as a consequence that has fed into my relationships where I avoided them because I felt, oh, I'm not financially stable enough to be in a relationship. That's powerful. Yeah, like money and uh, and love, I think are probably both tricksters. They can be absolutely because again, that was what your parents really saw as an issue for them. You took that feedback as a child in the limited way that you could understand it. Then they're like, "Oh, this I got to pay attention to. This could be dangerous for me." And I when I get older, right? And so I'm gonna I'm gonna err with caution here or avoid it altogether. 
Yeah, I find it fascinating, the different attachment styles around love, because it isn't necessarily a reflection of how loving your parents were if you've like developed into being an avoidant or having an anxious attachment style. What are your thoughts on the different attachment styles? Yeah, I absolutely think that um, we mirror what we see, but I think that you can you can change that as an adult. Mm. I think it's important to know what your style is and what your partner's style is. So then you can come together and say, okay, this is how I've been conditioned. And this is what's comfortable for me. This is what's comfortable for you, but this is not going to work for us as a couple and then choose something else. I think you said in the book, is it 2000 weddings you've been to? There was this like huge number of weddings you've been to. And counting. Yes. I'm married to a rabbi. So we get to see, um, couples at many stages of the relationship, which is really interesting because often we know them or we meet them before the wedding. I've seen them date very often. Um, I see the weeks leading up to the wedding and how they feel about it. Also, weddings feel very different. We're usually, you know, right in the front and you can feel the energy and there, there's a lot you can, you can see. Where do you think most people go wrong? And can you tell before when you're spending time with them, perhaps before they've got married or maybe maybe even afterwards, can you kind of even tell what might unfold if they don't stay conscious? I can actually. Um, And again, this is why I wrote the book because it doesn't have to be so hard and it's fixable. But the point is you got to start early. I I think that it's, it's funny to me. Often people will say, you know, like when their first fight or first year of marriage, you know, I don't understand. I'm a really good wife or good husband. No, you're horrible because you have zero practice at it. Like, how do you expect Mm. to be great? You know, it's like the book outliers to be great at anything takes 10,000 hours, which equates to 10 years. So if you really need to be a good partner, that means for 10 years, you have to work on being a good partner. And that's not automatic just because you're married now and you have the title of husband or wife. So I think where people really go wrong is that early on, they lose appreciation for one another. And again, I think a lot of it is now I'm married, I feel, I feel secure. We're not going to get divorced or we've, we've gotten this far. You kind of like relax a little bit and you put a little more, less effort into showing up or being attentive. And now you're on to like the next goal. And I think that's just human nature. So this appreciation thing, it has to be something that you're really aware of and that you really put energy and effort to, because if not, it's just human nature to lose it. It's just, you know, you've gotten something that you've always wanted. And now, you know, is it, does it feel as special? And then what happens is once you lose appreciation, you think the love is lost. There's a story in the book also about my oldest child, I remember, you know, he was my first experience of many as a mother. And uh, I remember when he was first born, just like holding his little skull in my hand and his smell and the way his hair stood up. It just, I mean, I can still tell you what that feels like to this day, 23 years later. And then when he hit puberty, I was like, who's this kid? (laughs) You know, He's talking back to me now and he's just so different. And so I lost appreciation in that moment. And I realized, and this is really when the lesson came to me, that has my love for him changed? No. Am I able to access it in that moment as I did so freely and naturally when he was an infant or toddler? No, because he's acting different, but I knew enough to appreciate him and his essence and not to take my feelings seriously. So I just think it's a real trick. And I think unless you're aware of it, I think almost everybody falls prey to this. And then the other thing, the other big one I would say is ego, because ego then makes you look for the differences instead of the commonalities between the two of you. So true. What are your thoughts on the, probably not the marriage stage, but this illusion of like grass is greener? 
again, it goes back to human nature. I think that if you think grass is greener on the other side, then really stop and say, okay, how can I water my garden and how can I make it green? Right. It's the onus is on you. And I think that again, lack of appreciation, if you appreciate that you have soil and that you have tools to build a garden and you have seeds and you have a vision and you have a partner, then why are you looking at the neighbor's yard? The one story that really um, stood out for me was when you're talking about this couple that rushed into marriage after six months and they moved out the city and the wife believed the words of her husband, but overlooked his actions and he didn't want her to work. And yet her work was really important to her. And so it was just a really interesting story that you shared that he, he was able to cover up his actions so quickly with platitudes, like nice words. I just would love to bring light to this idea of actions and words and maybe a caution not to be caught up in like, I guess, romance and the difference between romance and love perhaps. Well, here's the thing. She wanted to believe his words, right? I mean, I was sitting at that table, we had a dinner and, and it was actually, they had met online, which is fine, but he lived, she lived in, uh, out of the United States uh, they saw each other a few times. They were getting married very quickly. And I realized, and it was important for her that we met uh, him. We were with her family. My husband married them. And I remember sitting there and I started to ask a lot of questions. I'm just curious by nature. But as I was asking questions, I realized she was hearing the answers for the first time as well, which worried me quite honestly. Um, but then I saw that, and for me, it was really clear that he was just saying things to please her, but she really wanted to believe them. And part of it is because she didn't believe enough in herself and she didn't mm -hmm. make herself important in the marriage. She made him more important. So going into it, that was already, and, and there have been a lot of fights. They're still married and they, they'll stay married. And I think there's love, but the relationship isn't easy in some ways, let's say. And the book is filled with so many different examples and questions and stories for us to reflect on because within all the characters that you talk about, I certainly found commonality with all of them because they're just such stories of being human and us all trying to navigate this world of love. They're all true. Yeah, they're all true stories. I've changed the names, but <laughs> the rest is true. <laughs> it's such a wonderful book. How can people maybe, once they've read the book, how else can people work with you? Like what would be if someone's in a relationship and yet they want to maybe evolve their relationship to the next level, if they want to attract a soulmate that is more on the soul level rather than the superficial level, are there any ways they can practically work with you to evolve these skill sets? Yeah, I think the first is, and I see this a lot, um, people have a desire for change, um, but we fear change. We don't know what that looks like, fear of the unknown. I think the first is just to be honest with yourself. Be honest with where you're at, where you struggle, what your belief systems are, how you feel about yourself. Just start with the you aspect and be really, really honest. You don't have to do anything with it. I think often people lie to themselves because then if they really accept the truth and the truth is not where they want it to be, they're not prepared to do the next step of taking action for change. So I'm saying do nothing. Just give yourself permission to see truth and sit with that. And then the next step later will be, okay, if I wanted to take one small action in a different direction, what could I do? Um, in terms of the support I can offer, for sure, read my book. People always say they feel like I'm speaking directly to them. There's a ton of workshops. I also do um, offer Rethink Love sessions for people that are um, single or in a relationship which I've heard, you know, is very successful for them. And uh, you can follow me on Monica Berg 74. I have a blog 
called rethinklife.today. So there's a ton of content, a ton of support, and just know that you and all of us are destined for greatness. And the only thing that really is stopping you is probably you. It's so true. And I will put links to all of Monica's work in the show notes and also a link to her podcast that she does with um, her husband. And you tackle on the podcast all sorts of different topics. We do. um, Really everything under the sun. Both of us lost our parents. um, Well, I lost my father and and Michael lost his mother during um, the launch of our podcast. And so we talk about death and grief and forgiveness. Um, We talk about pain uh, joy, purpose. I mean, really things that like you need answers to. Um, we also talk about, you know, we're married and we've been married for 24 years. So, um, there's a lot of relationship stuff in there too, just because you see our dynamic back and forth. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a fun experience. Amazing. Well, we'll put links to that as well. Monica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 